first message is from Mr. Matt Steele. It is entitled, Born of God and Free from Sin. Matt. Excuse me. <laughs> the problem with singing right before you speak is get very thirsty. So rumor has it, we have some baptisms today. Is that the rumor? We'll be putting the ice in later. But it may be cold enough it doesn't need the ice. I don't know. Trying out our new baptismal back there. So speaking of baptisms, do you remember yours? Who does not remember their baptism? That's, that's a good sign. <laughs> when you think back about your baptism, Can you remember your thoughts, maybe the ideas, the, the things that you thought would come after your baptism? You know, I'm not talking about flashing lights or, you know, thunder, rumbles, but serious things. Just what your life would be like after baptism. How you would change. How you would not change. What your life would be like after baptism. My wife's not in here, so I'm going to tell on her. <coughs> so she's told me one time, she was baptized, I believe, when she was 19. You know, and when you're 19, you think you're, you got it down. You're, you're an adult now, you know, 19. And then when you're 40-something, you realize 19 is not so mature. So she had a, a, a little, uh, I guess, an epiphany or a thought or a challenge in her mind about what life would be like after baptism. She thought that she would have to not sin and never would, right? Because when you're baptized, you're clean and pure, and to sin after that, well, that's certainly not our objective, right? But maybe in naivety, thinking that it would never happen after baptism. I remember having some similar thoughts myself. So I got baptized twice, just to... <laughs> I was baptized in one of them there Protestant churches, in the Baptist church, and then when I came into the Church of God, I was kind of advised, you know, you might want to consider being baptized again, and so I did, and received the laying on of hands. So, we each have stories. We each have things that we thought life would be like after we were baptized. And I'm sure if we were to go back and interview our former selves, we might chuckle, maybe roll our eyes, shake our head. Because, you know, we didn't know, did we? I mean, we're told, count the cost. We can count as much as the cost that we know about. But beyond that, it's an unknown world. One thing we do know 
for sure, because God is with us. That regardless of what happens, God is with us. You know, if you, uh, I think just shortly before the feast, I gave a message on repairing the house of God, how we were the house of God, and how, like Hezekiah, we had to repair this house. Well, now, having the house repaired, and maybe looking towards baptism, or thinking back about our baptism, I want us to examine something further, something challenging and something that will challenge us after we're baptized and continue to do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, speaking concerning the observance of the bread and the wine, the Apostle Paul asks us to do what? He says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. I don't think Passover is the only time we can do that. We can do that much more frequently. We can examine ourselves. In fact, probably leaving it right up to Passover might be missing some vital points. Examining ourselves. Self-examination is something we can do and perhaps should do more often. But it's not a simple task. It's one that should be done with prayer, perhaps even fasting, and with an understanding of the parameters that promote a healthy and beneficial outcome. I don't know if you ever think about it that way, because you probably find yourself, at least I do, examining myself on the spot in a, in a passing moment with a very critical eye. Well, you idiot. Why did you do that? That's not self-examination. What is that? That's the voice of the accuser coming out from our own mind and our own lips. It's not self-examination. So it's important to examine ourselves in the right way, looking for improvement, for betterment in our lives. A great time for self-examination is, of course, before baptism, leading up to baptism, before taking that huge commitment, that great leap of faith in submitting yourself to the grace and mercy of God. Grace and mercy because there is nothing else to do, is there? Once you come to that realization, once you've come to that place where you know that there is no other Savior, is there any choice? Is there really any other place to go? We know that we are sinners and that in us is darkness and wickedness. Because in the end, that's what we are called to baptism for. We're not called to baptism because we understand doctrine. That may lead us to that realization. But that's not why. We're not called to to baptism because we understand all prophecies. It's not that complicated. We're not called to baptism because we understand the holy days or the Sabbath. They support us and they help us. The baptism is not about that. All those things are good. Baptism is about coming to that place where you realize you need saving. We have come in the past, or we have come today, or we will come in the future to the waters of baptism because we've been convicted in our hearts of that most basic of truths 
described very simply and very powerfully by John Newton. And he's quoted in the movie Amazing Grace. And he says, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Nothing more simple than that. That's what we have come to at baptism. This is the richest of all revelations, isn't it? Because without it, we really can't progress. We really can't develop a relationship with God. We don't think we need saving without it. God has found us lost, wounded, weak, and dying, and has come to save us. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 40 and verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to, hear, inclined to me and heard my cry. And it wasn't just we're sitting there crying, feeling sorry for ourselves. It's a cry for help. Save me. An understanding, a realization of who we are, what we are, and what we've come to. He brought me up, he said, out of the horrible pit, out of destruction. The pit can also represent a roaring tumult, an uncertainty, and a, a destruction, and a disordered life. He brought him out of that pit, out of the miry clay. I remember my dad telling me a story one time about how he had some brand new shoes when he was a boy. And he wasn't supposed to go out and play in them, but he did. And he went with his friends, and uh, I guess there was some kind of area that was rather marshy, and the new shoes are there to this day. Because <laughs> he couldn't pull himself out. <laughs> so he grabbed a hold of a branch and pulled himself up and swung along, and there's the shoes, probably buried a little time capsule. But that's what miry clay does to you. It sucks you in. And we're not just up into our shoes when we're in this pit. It's up to our neck. It's up to our neck. He has set my feet upon a rock. Is that just any old rock? It's the rock. He set our feet on the rock, the rock of ages. And then he says something else, and I just find it so encouraging. Because from the very moment of salvation, setting us on the rock of Christ, he has then established our steps. He's given us the direction for us to go. He has established our steps. He's put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. He turns us into an example, a witness at our baptism and then on in our lives. The psalmist says that he, the Lord, will establish his steps. Make sure that he doesn't end up back in that pit. Walk back in there again. But the psalmist is no longer in control of his life. He is not the boss anymore. 
It is the Lord. He is guiding his steps. And this is something we should take to heart. It is encouraging, especially as we examine ourselves, because we can be hard on ourselves. We can be incredibly negative and maybe destructive. So we need to bear this in mind that God directs our steps. He establishes our steps. There's a very familiar passage in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. When you've entered the waters of baptism, when you have submitted yourself to the grace and mercy of God, you have, in fact, acknowledged it. Of course you have. So he now will direct us. He will guide us. He will keep you from falling, as I said, into that pit. And yet, if you're like me, and I can't believe I'm that unique. I know I'm weird, but I'm not that unique. You're like me and you have a fear. They surface every once in a while. But if we look too closely at our character, at our nature, how well we're doing, are we improving, that we may find with horror that we're still in the pit. Do you ever have that fear? Maybe, maybe those two baptisms don't really take. I need a third. I'm in the pit. Why would we think that? Why would we think that we're still in this pit? After all this time and effort, in some of our cases, decades of walking this way after our baptism, why would we think that with God directing our paths, he would let us fall into that pit? after the hours of Bible study, after all the sermons you've heard, after everything that we have been through, the prayers and the fasting and the holy days and the Passovers kept where we examine ourselves. Why would we think that we might still be in that pit? I think it's because we examine ourselves incorrectly with accusation, at the wrong time, perhaps, maybe in the wrong place, with the wrong benchmark. Self-examination has to be done carefully with scripture, with prayer. If we test ourselves in the wrong way, if we concentrate on the first part of what John Newton said, I am a great sinner. And we stop there. I found myself doing that in, in my prayer life. Wanting to confess to God my sins and ha asking for help. But the very first thing I say is, I'm a sinner. Is that health? Is that the way I should approach God? Or should I say, I'm your son. Help me. This is what I'm struggling with. We need to examine ourselves carefully. In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Paul, asking us again to put ourselves through the ringer, he says, 
Examine yourselves to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you? Christ is in you. Unless, unless you're disqualified. But this is how long Paul felt like that they were disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And notice the way he says that. He doesn't say, I trust or I know. Let me get this right. He does not say that I trust you're not disqualified. He doesn't say that. He says, I trust, I hope that you know that you're not disqualified. And it's a difference. In our self-examination, it is easy to approach it in a way that we assume that we're not, uh, well, we're not going to be impressed with what we find. We assume we are failing. We assume we're not measuring up. Especially when the minister or the preacher or the teacher or somebody in church gets up and reads from 1 John chapter 3. Are you familiar with that passage? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. It starts off good. It starts off encouraging. He says, Behold what manner of love has the Father bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's really encouraging. So we'll just, we'll just stop there and close the book. Right? Some of you have read ahead. You know what's coming. Verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Well, that, as they say, is the whole shooting match, isn't it? What happens now? I'm done. Cooked. And you are too. By this definition, <laughs> we're in a lot of trouble. I'm reasonably certain that we've all sinned recently. Raise your hand. <laughs> gotcha. Man, this is a tough benchmark. How in the world can we live up to this standard? There was only one man who could live up to this standard. One. The rest of us may as well pack it in. We'll have a party in the bottom of the pit. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Okay, this is getting better and better. 
For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, God's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. <laughs> well, what's going on here? <laughs> How do we reconcile this? You know, it's something that we need to maybe set aside too. The word born in this passage, you know, we, we, we know what it means to be born again. We have a faith and an understanding of that. We are not born yet into the kingdom of God. We are not spirit beings. But in this context, I don't think that's what John is talking about. Because you quite as easily have read this conceived or begotten. And in the context, he's not talking about the future either. This is present tense. This is not future. That we are born of God now is what he's saying. And that's the context. So if John means that those who are born of God now, in this life, do not sin, does that help us any? We're still in that same question. How do we reconcile this? Our situation is made worse, in fact, if we sin. Sin, as Paul says, so easily besets us all around us, and you know when and how we fall victims to those kinds of sins. How can there be any hope at all? John continues, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, when we know that we have passed from death to life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderers have eternal life abiding in him. Just further reinforcing it. We are angry and have hatred toward a brother. We're cooked. We're of the devil. It says, John says, that this makes it manifest. So again, how do we reconcile this? Because what John is telling us is our worst fears. That we maybe didn't leave the pit. That our self-examination is not coming up positive. We are, by this, this very definition, still in our sins, still in the pit. But remember back in Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 13, Paul does not seem to agree with John, at least not on the outset. Paul's almost asking us to assume the opposite, to assume that we are the children of God, that we are righteous. Remember, he said, I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. 
that you are not a failure, that you're not still in the pit, even though it might feel like it. To make sense of this, we have to turn over to that very familiar passage in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Paul says, kind of joining him in the middle of his, of his explanation, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But then the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by that commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just, and good. And then he says, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through that which is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. To just underline it, to bring it out, to wave it in our face, so that we can see it. And there's no doubt of the sin that is in us. For we know that the Lord is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I want to do, I don't practice. But I hate that I do. If then I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the Lord that it is good, that the Lord is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. I struggled with this passage for many years. It's not free-flowing. Paul is putting a lot of things together. And in my struggles, I, I remembered finally, I mean, I was a grown man when I finally got my head around exactly what he was talking about, at least in some small way. I was sitting at the kitchen table reading my Bible, praying for wisdom, and praying that God would help me understand this. And he did. Again, as far as, far as I do understand it now. Paul continues, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Aha! He's starting to add a little bit more information here. In my flesh... Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that will, or that is good, I find not. For the good that I would do, I do not do. Again, he's reemphasizing it. But the evil that I would not do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I would not, if I do that I, that I would not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's brought that out twice. He said, take note of this. This is important. Twice. 
And he says so because it's not easy to understand. And for some reason, we forget. We forget that when we are brought out of the waters of baptism, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are no longer our body. I mean, it's not like our body just drops to the floor in a puddle. But we are no longer in our flesh. We are not part of the body anymore. We function it. We control it. We still eat. We still feel pain. But it has a law in it that makes it sin. We are not in that anymore. It feels sometimes, when we self-examine, when we test ourselves, it feels that we are still in the pit because we forget we are still in the body that was once in the pit. And it's still weak. And it still has sins. And we are so tired of the body. And long for that day when we can be free of it. Paul says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Evil is present with me, the one that wills to, to do good. He's separating himself. Christians essentially are a split personality because we have that flesh and we are separating from it. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me again into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. It's not an easy concept to get our mind around sometimes, how we can be separated from our own flesh, and how, if we are the child of God, being baptized, having received the Spirit of God, how we can still sin? It's the flesh. Does that mean we don't resist it? No. We fight it. We subdue it. And that's where the self-examination is beneficial. But if we're examining ourselves in Christ, in this new creature in Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, we are a new creature. We have the attributes of Christ as that new creature. That creature doesn't need much in the way of examination. Remember what we, we read earlier. It has the seed of God in it. What John said, it cannot sin. God cannot sin. We are that new creature. Therefore, if anyone is Christ's, he is a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. When we go through the waters of baptism, and we receive the laying on of hands, we are created that new creature. In that very moment, the Spirit of God bonds with our spirit. And we become something new that's never existed 
ever before. A unique being that in the fullness of time, as we know, will be born into God's family. For those of us who have already been through that wonderful burial, whether it be in cold water or hot, in Christ, in that new creature with him, we are as clean today as when we were raised out of those waters. Do you realize that? We are in Christ a new creature. New creatures. We are separate beings distinct from that old body of sin and death. So when you evaluate yourself, when you examine yourself, you make sure that you are evaluating the right person. Because you are not the old you. I am not the old me. In Christ, we are that new creature. And if you do evaluate yourself in this way, in this manner, I think you will find a quality of character that you never thought was there. You will find a nature and a beauty and a spirit of generosity that you've never, never knew that you had. Why? Because, as the whole old hymn says, you will see Jesus in you, in that new creature. His character, his nature, will day by day build up in us a glorious being, a new nature, a new creature. Praise God for his great Savior.